So here in verse 22, once again, for a second time, Jesus told the disciples about his impending and imminent suffering, saying to them, look at it again in verse 22, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. That's the second announcement. If you recall, the first announcement of his suffering came way back in chapter 16, verse 21, when Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. So to put this uh, story here in context, we go back and we look at the first report of his upcoming and his necessary suffering back in chapter 16. Jesus gave the report, and Peter, the apostle, or the disciple Peter, in a moment of absolutely mind-blowing arrogance and foolishness, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying in verse 22 of chapter 16, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Just think about that for a second. Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, took it upon himself to dictate to the Christ, the Son of the living God, what he ought to do as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter did this because he, as we have learned over the past few weeks, along with the disciples, simply couldn't wrap their heads around the idea of a of, the, of a suffering and dying Messiah. That instead of a Messiah coming to overthrow foreign Roman oppressors, instead of a Messiah coming to lead the people of Israel into a period of unprecedented prosperity on earth and liberty and influence, Jesus will instead head to Jerusalem where he will suffer at the hands of and be killed by the very Israelites the disciples assume he should be reigning over. But as Peter took Jesus aside to tell him that a suffering Messiah must never be, that a dying Messiah is an unacceptable proposition, Jesus turned to Peter and in verse 23 of chapter 16 said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The minds of the, of the disciples were far too focused on worldly things, on earthly and immediate rewards and pleasures. And for this reason, the Lord Jesus Christ continued, telling them that not only will the Son of Man suffer or tread the path of suffering, death, suffering and death, but in like manner, anyone who would come after him as a disciple, meaning you and meaning me, must also prepare for the possibility of meeting the very same end. That anyone who would become his disciple must divest themselves of trust in self, of the expectation of gaining earthly riches, of focusing primarily on earthly comforts, ease, and security. Because anyone who would turn to Christ must, as Jesus said in 1624, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him. You hear this, right? True disciples of Christ count the cost of following him and prepare for the possibility, perhaps even the inevitability of suffering in this world as a result of or because of your committed allegiance to him. Disciples must deny themselves, meaning they wave goodbye to self. They renounce self and they focus all on obedience to Christ. And when the will of Christ, the word of Christ, the way of Christ crosses against one of your desires, the will of Christ takes priority. When the will of Christ crosses our own self-love and our own desire for comfort and ease, his will takes precedence over those things. And disciples take up their cross, meaning we take up the very object of our death, 
dying to this world, dying to all the charms of the world, the temptations of the world, the sinful passions of the world, the desires of the world. And as the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6.17, we go out from the midst of the world and be separate from them. It means that we hear and we obey the exhortation of the Apostle John in his first letter when he wrote to the believers... Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So you see, the world and its desires are passing away, according to the Apostle John. And so those who hope to save their lives by living for or living according to the world's desires, those who hope to avoid any and all conflict with the world in favor of a life of ease and comfort in the world, and so deny Jesus in their life and in their words so that they don't face any consequences or repercussions for that faith, these will ultimately lose everything as they forfeit their very souls to eternal damnation. Rather than boasting in Jesus, would you hide your belief from the world? Rather than proclaiming Jesus everywhere you go, would you remain silent so that you will not risk any difficulty in the world? Will you buy into and live according to such lies as, you know, your faith, it's just a personal thing. It has no place in the public square. When you're at home, you can talk about it all you want, but when you're out in the world, you keep it to yourself. I mean, we've bought into that, haven't we? The only difference is that this, or the only difficulty with that is that it's false. Disciples of Jesus name him everywhere. Whether people want to hear his name or not, we name him everywhere because, as the old Dutch prime minister once, Abraham Kuyper once wrote, there is not one square inch in all of creation over which the Lord Jesus Christ does not cry out, it's mine! The twelve were not expecting... And they had a quite, quite a difficult time dealing with these words of Jesus Christ, this announcement of his suffering, because it posed a direct contradiction to their worldview. These were men who were convinced that worldly poverty actually signified God's displeasure with the poor in question. These are men who believe that earthly riches testified to the favor and the approval of God in a person's life. Something Jesus said simply is not the case. These are men who assumed when they passed a man born blind that the man was blind because of some sin in either himself or his parents that God was angry about. Remember in John 9, verse, John chapter 9, 1 and 2, we read this. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus went on to correct their worldview by saying, it was not this man. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born with an earthly infirmity so that the glory of God might be revealed. That the works of God might be displayed in this man's life. A consideration that did not ever even occur to the disciples. They couldn't see past their earthly bound worldview. And Jesus here had just toppled their entire perspective. But as he toppled their perspective, and as they, he, they were in distress, Jesus, in his grace, comforted them with a promise. We looked at that promise last week. 16.28 There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
meaning some of the very disciples to whom Jesus had just revealed the necessity of a suffering Messiah, the death of Messiah, would soon be witness to a wonderful manifestation of Christ's royal majesty and kingly splendor. And six days later, Jesus fulfilled that promise when he took Peter and James and John up on a high mountain. And on that mountain, we read that Christ was transfigured before them. On that mountain, the awesome grandeur of the Lord Jesus Christ was revealed as the veil, the curtain that shields his majestic glory from view was pulled back. And we read in 17 verse 2, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And not only that, but Moses and Elijah joined Jesus on the mountain and they conversed with him about all that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And then, and then a bright cloud in verse 5 overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. At this mountaintop experience, these three disciples saw the glory of Christ. They watched and listened as Moses and Elijah appeared and spoke with Jesus. And they heard the voice of the Lord speaking from the cloud. A truly surreal experience, to say the least, right? And we, we read that Peter wants to stay. And while we might after years and years and years of conditioning, want to chalk Peter's desire to stay on the mountain up to foolishness, answer this question. Why wouldn't he have wanted to stay there? Think about it. On that mountain, the disciples, like Moses on Mount Sinai, encountered the perfections of the Lord. The wonder of it all, the joy of it all, the splendor of it all, the rapture of such an experience with the Lord. These were men who had been so fixated on the things of earth and so focused on earthly gain, and now they get a sight, a glimpse of something far greater, the presence of God. Who would ever want to leave? But unlike the day when all of God's children are blessed with eternal, an eternal life of perfect joy in his presence, on this day, Jesus and the disciples must descend the mountain back into a world that is characterized by a lack of faith. They must walk back into a world that is characterized by exceeding corruption and twistedness. And this is the contrast that the two locations present the stark contrast, and this is a contrast that we must all endure. You who love the Lord, our desire is to be with the Lord in glory. Our desire is to be on the mountain with the Lord, in that place where all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the trial, it's all gone, it's no more. But before we can enter into that most joyous eternity, we too must live in this world of wickedness. We must live in this world shining as lights in the world, looking forward to the day when we will see the glorious, majestic splendor of Christ with our own eyes. And as on this day, Jesus Peter, James, and John descend from the mountain. It does not take long for the realities of life in a fallen world to confront them once again. As Jesus and the three disciples meet up with the nine disciples who had remained on the ground. Matthew records it like this in verse 14. When they, that's Jesus, Peter, James, and John, came to the crowd, a man came up to him. Now, Matthew prefers brevity here. He likes to keep it brief, but Mark records the situation in much more detail. In Mark chapter 9, verse 14, we read, when they came, that's again, Peter, James, John, and Jesus, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Do you see the difference? 
While Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain seeing the Son of Man come in his kingdom, witnessing the royal splendor and majesty of Jesus, hearing the voice of God enveloped in the cloud, the other nine found themselves on the ground level surrounded by a crowd listening to them argue with the scribes. And as Jesus approached the crowd, Mark writes in Mark 9.15, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him, and Jesus asked them, what are you arguing with them about? In other words, what's going on here? What's all this arguing about? The answer, again, according to Mark, was the inability of the nine disciples on the ground to cast an evil spirit out of a young boy who'd been brought to them by a desperate father. We read that in Mark 9, 17 to 18. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So the father brings, initially brought his son to Jesus for healing, but Jesus wasn't there. Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And so this father did the next best thing, at least what he considered to be the next best thing. He brought the boy to Christ's disciples and asked if they could drive the demon out. But as we note in the text, they could not. And while we don't actually possess the transcript of the argument that was going on between the scribes and the nine disciples, it would seem that the, that the scribes were mocking and insulting them for trying and failing to expel the unclean spirit from the boy. Look at you guys. You follow this Jesus and you can't expel this demon? And the crowds are all listening. Matthew doesn't reference the argument between scribes and disciples. Instead, he, he focuses on the man and his son. And in verse, verses 14 and 15, we read, When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So again, note a contrast here. A contrast between what is occurring on the mountain and what is taking place on the ground. On the mountain, we see a father, the father, affirm delight in his beloved son. The same son who had just announced that he must go to Jerusalem to, be, to, to suffer and be killed in accordance with the will of his heavenly father. This father who speaks on the mountain will give up his son in order to give those who trust in that very son all good and wonderful things. And here on the ground, we see the realities of life in this world. We see a father who is desperately trying to save his only son from the grievous torments he endures at the hands of the demonic. And so the man approached Jesus and knelt before him, pleading with him, have mercy, show pity, have compassion toward my son. Mark tells us that the boy was still young. Luke tells us that this boy was the man's only child. And Mark records the father's request, saying, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If if you can do something. You see, the disciples' failure all of a sudden led this man to wonder, could Jesus actually do anything? Even after everything Jesus had done to prove, to display, to reveal his power and his authority, after numerous healings, numerous miracles, this man approaches him with little faith and says, if, if, I watched your disciples, I watched them fail can you do something? Because based on the powerlessness I, need, I note in your disciples, I'm not sure if you can. If you can, do anything. Have compassion on us and help us. So how dire is this boy's situation? Matthew writes, he has, in verse 15, he has seizures. Now this word here, 
for seizures is only used twice in the New Testament. Here and way back in Matthew 4.24, where we are told that Jesus healed those having seizures. Now, depending on the translation that you are using, some will interpret the word as epilepsy, believing that the symptoms listed in the, in the text align with what we now know as epileptic seizures. While others, such as the New American Standard, will use the phrase lunatic. He is a lunatic. The word here literally means to be moonstruck. Moonstruck. You see, in the ancient world, people held to the idea that strange and erratic behaviors, that bizarre, perplexing, and irregular behaviors were influenced by, were aggravated by, the phases of the moon. Even today, right? You might hear someone say, must be a full moon out tonight. The use of the word indicates here that the boy's behavior was totally unsettling, disturbing, and abnormal. And as we note in the text, this particular boy's condition wasn't the result of the moon, but the consequence of demonic oppression or possession. Because of the seizures that had been brought on by this evil spirit, the boy, according to 1715, look at it again, suffered terribly. The evil spirit tormented the boy, causing him, according to Jesus in Mark 9.25, to be both mute and deaf. And when the evil spirit seized the boy and threw him down, the boy foamed and he ground his teeth and he became rigid, according to Mark 9.18. Luke describes it this way. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Convulsing meaning it shakes him uncontrollably. Seizing means it grabs him by force and dominates him. And it shatters him, meaning it overcomes him and seeks to break him, crush him into pieces. What a dreadful situation for both father and son. Now I want you for a second to see here in this situation the end, the end goal of Satan and his evil forces. If they could, they would assault each and every one of us with similar torments. Satan is a thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. His aim for each and every one of us is to dominate, overcome, and shatter you like he tried to do to this boy. Satan seeks to break you, to crush you, to bring about terrible suffering in your life. And that suffering doesn't necessarily have to be uh, an earthly suffering. He wants your ultimate suffering. And so while it might actually be suffering in the here and now, like it was for this boy, Satan is a master of playing the long game. The damnation of your soul is the most terrible suffering that can be experienced, and so Satan will, with all of his strategies, all of his wiles, all of his cunning and craftiness, labor to aim you in the direction of ease in any direction other than the direction of the Lord Jesus Christ for the ultimate purpose of damning your soul. As we read in Scripture, Satan is a murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning. And he, along with the company of evil that is aligned with him, does not, do not stand in the truth because there is no truth in them. John 8, 44, Jesus said, when he speaks, he speaks out of his own character. When the demons speak, they speak out of their own character because they are liars and Satan is the father of lies. And who do you think stands at the head of the lies of this world? Lies that far too many professing Christians find themselves succumbing to far too many churches aligning themselves with. Satan leads the domain of darkness in an, in an effort to ensnare and capture humanity in a tangled web of wickedness and sin in order to see sin's wages paid out. And what are the wages of sin? 
according to Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And not just your physical death, your eternal death. Satan and the demonic realm are at this moment, Scripture tells us, working in the sons of disobedience. If you haven't trusted in Christ, the Apostle Paul is talking about you. All who reject and rebel against Christ as Lord and Savior are ones in whom the demonic realm are at work. And listen, as you, believers, survey the world that we live in, know this, Satan is still at work. Sometimes I get into conversations and I find it unbelievable that I have to make such a statement because far too many think themselves too sophisticated to ascribe the evil we see in this world directly to the agency of Satan. Satan and the demonic realm are real. They are active, committed to your destruction, whether by subtly turning your heart away from discipleship to Christ, turning you away from following Christ in favor of accepting, appreciating, supporting, approving of the wicked perversions and sins of the world, seeking the destruction of your soul, I mean, look at it. One doesn't have to look far to see the influence of Satan on our own society, does, do we? As we continue to pursue with unrelenting determination the very sins that Romans tells us that God has given unrighteous humans who suppress the truth over to as a part of his wrath. The dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves, Romans 1.24 Dishonorable passions, Romans 1.26, meaning the exchange of God-ordained relationships for shameless acts that are contrary to nature. A debased mind to do what ought not to be done, Romans 1.28. To pursue such things is to walk on the very road that Satan would have you walk, a road that should you remain on it until death will bring about far worse consequences, far worse suffering than the boy in our text could have ever endured. So again, consider the contrast here. Consider the contrast between Satan's goals for humanity and Christ's. Whereas Satan and the unclean spirit here, and the unclean spirits in league with him, bring seizures to the boy, causing him to suffer terribly, throwing him into fires, Jesus comes and pities the boy, shows mercy to the boy, shows compassion to the boy by healing him. Jesus has come to give all who would turn to him in faith and in repentance life, and not just any life, but abundant life. John 10.10 says, life to the full. So listen again. Satan seeks your demise, the eternal death of your eternal soul. Christ offers you abundant life, life to the full, and eternity on the mountaintop with him. Which will you choose? See, it makes zero sense to do anything other than to run to, to flee to, to turn to, to follow and believe in the most merciful, compassionate, and gracious Lord, Jesus Christ. Anything else is absolute and total foolishness. Before Jesus healed the boy, Matthew records the father's, the boy's father saying in verse 16, I brought my son to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Now, this is interesting, right? Especially given the fact that Christ had already given the disciples authority over unclean spirits. You remember back in Matthew 10 when he called the twelve to himself. We read in verse 1, Jesus called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. After bestowing upon them such authority, Jesus then sent them out on mission to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in chapter 10, verse 6. And he commanded them, saying, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. And no doubt, the twelve had successfully cast out a number of demons from that point to this. But now, at the foot of the mountain, they failed to accomplish the very deed the Lord Jesus Christ gave them the authority to discharge. And why is that? Verse 20, Jesus makes it clear. Because of their little faith. Jesus had just spent time on the mountain communing with his heavenly Father. 
speaking to such faithful luminaries, such worthy men as Moses and Elijah, only to descend from that mountain and immediately encounter the pervasive, ever-present unfaithfulness of the people. The unfaithfulness of a father who brings his son to Jesus saying, if you can do something, to the unfaithfulness of scribes who argue with and mock the disciples, to unfaithful crowds who are concerned with seeing only with seeing miracles and having their immediate needs met, and now, most grievously, to his own disciples who after all they've witnessed, after being with Jesus for over two years now, still lack faith. And this brings Jesus to lamentation. As he responded in 1717, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The whole event brings the reader back to Exodus 32. If you remember, the Lord called Moses up onto Mount Sinai to receive the law. And the man of God, Moses, spent a prolonged period of time on that mountain communing with the Lord, hearing the Lord tell him and reveal to him the perfect, holy, and righteous law. But while up on the mountain, we read in Exodus 32, verse 1, the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain and gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. So after interceding for them, after petitioning for them, Exodus 32, 15-20 tells us, Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. When Joshua heard the noise of the people in the camp, as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he, Moses, came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Again, we see Moses who had just spent time on the mountaintop in the presence of the Lord God, the God of Israel, the God who is good and gracious and holy and perfect and righteous, as he descends from the mountain, he is immediately confronted by a faithless, twisted generation. And in his lament, he threw the tablets out of his, his hand and he broke them at the foot of the mountain. See once again the contrast between time in the presence of our most glorious Lord and time in this world of faithlessness. There really is no comparison, is there? Whenever we read of God's people in Scripture spending time in the presence of the Lord, as they return to the world, it's always a lament. It's always a cry to go back into the house of the Lord. It's better to be in the house of the Lord. You remember, David knew what he was talking about when he wrote in Psalm 84, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The lamentation of Jesus here to the faithless and twisted generation harkens back to Israel of old. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? It's reminiscent of Numbers 14, 27, where we hear the Lord say to Moses and Aaron, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Brings us back to Moses in the song that he wrote and taught to Israel as they were about to enter into the promised land, reminding them of the faithlessness of the wilderness generation. He wrote in Deuteronomy 32.5, They have dealt corruptly with the Lord. They are no longer his children because they are a blemished, a crooked, and a twisted generation. 
It's been thousands of years since Israel wandered in the wilderness. But as Jesus descends from the mountain and observes the current generation, he can pronounce the very same word to them that Moses applied to those who died in the wilderness thousands of years earlier. It's like they've learned nothing in millennia. Faithlessness is still prevalent. 1717, this generation of Israelites is faithless, meaning they lack trust in the word. They lack trust in the promise. They lack trust in the truth. They lack trust in commitment to living in accordance with and pursuing the will of God even more. Even more than that. Primarily, they lack trust in the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the object of their faith. So, they are actually unbelieving. They are actually, the word here for faithless means rejectors of the truth. And not only that, but look, the next word he uses in 1717 is twisted. Meaning, they are perverse, depraved, deformed, corrupted, and rebellious. It means, this word means that they are twisted in the opposite direction of faith and trust in the Lord. It means their sense of right and wrong their understanding of good and evil, their grasp of God's will is contaminated and therefore distorted. It's a generation where sin is celebrated and virtue is mocked, where societal values are preferred over the truth of God's word, which always ends up being the case with a faithless and twisted generation. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ is rejected by a generation... Whenever his, the commands of God are trampled underfoot in favor of corruptness, or corruption, perversity, and depravity, it always ends in a faithless, twisted generation. And as Jesus has just experienced time communing with the Father and coming down off the mountain and seeing and confronting once again the faithlessness of pretty much everyone around him, he cries out, how long am I to be with you? It's been almost three years now, and the faithless, twisted generation hasn't changed. The extensive and far-reaching faithlessness and perversity has made it difficult to live among such a people, especially, again, after just having spent time with his heavenly Father. The dissimilarity between those two places, the mountaintop and the foot of the mountain, are quite pronounced. Jesus was grieved by their faithlessness, and he followed it up with another lament. How long am I to bear with you? Meaning, how long must I put up with you? And we can understand Jesus here, can't we? We too, as followers of Christ, called to be ambassadors in this world, we live among a faithless and twisted generation. And the Apostle Paul made it clear, he warned the Ephesian church that representatives of the faithless, twisted, perverted world would actually try to destroy the church from the inside. In Acts chapter 20, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And again, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Philippian church, reminded them that like Jesus, they too live in a twisted generation and exhorted them, and by extension exhorted us too, in Philippians 2, 14 to 16, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling or, and disputing are the very characteristics and hallmarks of the wilderness, the faithless wilderness generation. If you're a grumbler or a disputer, you are faithless and twisted. That's why Paul will say, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So listen, fellow Christian, you must live in and endure a faithless, twisted, godless generation. You can feel it, right? 
a generation that mocks the will of God, that mocks the truth of God, and we too can be heard lamenting the condition of the world too. I've heard it from, from a number of you. Come, Lord Jesus. Why do we say that? Because we recognize that we are living in the midst of a corrupt world. And as we live in this generation, we must be on guard. We must always hold fast to the word of life because you and I are regularly engaging in and hearing the lies of this corrupt and twisted generation. Deceptions and foolishness given to us and spoken to us by this generation. Lies that run contrary to God's word. Deceptions that will try to make you believe they are God's word all of which can, does, and will wreak havoc on you as an individual, your families, your communities, and our nation. You will be engaging with deceptions that try to make you believe that you are a fool for trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will engage with deceptions that tell you that you are on the wrong side of history because you obey Jesus Christ. You will engage with deceptions that tell you you ought to be embarrassed for holding fast to and speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not believe any of those deceptions. Wisdom, the fear of God, is the beginning of wisdom. The only people in this world who are truly wise are the ones who have come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are times when, in the midst of this crooked and twisted generation, when our faith is little when it looks at the massive torrents and seemingly insurmountable mountains of wickedness and evil in this world. There are times when our faith gives way as it did for the disciples and it leads us to, a powerle- to, be, to powerlessness in the battle that we must wage against the spiritual forces of darkness that hold people captive. And so you, listen, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith the object of your faith. Look to Jesus, the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Look to Jesus, the one to whom the nations will ultimately either submit or be broken in pieces by him and his rod of iron. Know this. Know this as you live blamelessly and innocently in the midst of this crooked world. Because, also know, that try as the demonic realm might, when Jesus speaks, it must flee. We see that in John in, in, in seventeen seventeen when Jesus said, Bring the boy here to me. And when the child was brought to Jesus, verse 18 said, Jesus rebuked the demon. Mark records Jesus saying, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, you come out of him and never enter into him again. This rebuke command of Jesus is a persistent pattern throughout the Gospels. We read, for example, during a calamitous storm at sea, Jesus rebuked the winds. And what happened? The sea was calm. We read earlier in Mark, he writes of a man with an unclean spirit who entered into the synagogue and cried out, What have you, ha- what do you, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And all the people in the synagogue were stunned when the, when the demon came out of the man, and they said, He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. When Jesus commands, the demonic realm obeys him. When he rebukes the demon, true to form, according to verse 18, it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. See the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. See the pity of our Lord Jesus Christ on this boy. But it led the disciples to ask themselves an interesting question. In verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And the we here is emphatic. Why could we not expel and drive out the demon? And the answer, because of your little faith. Now, I just want to be careful here to point out that this is not about the quantity of your faith. 
but the quality of your faith. We must not think to ourselves, if only I had more faith, I could accomplish more things, as though faith itself is the source of our power. No, this is about the quality of our faith, meaning our confidence, our trust, and our reliance upon the object of our faith, the true source of our power, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The disciples' inability to drive the demon out of the boy was directly tied to their lack of trust in Jesus. They failed to trust him, to lean on him, to supply them with the authority to do what he told them to do. For us, little faith might take the form of taking matters into our own hands, trying to solve our own problems in our own strength because we simply don't trust Jesus to oversee them and take care of them for us. We don't trust Jesus enough. Little faith is the type of faith that trusts when life is going comfortably, when life is going according to plan. Jesus is big in those days, but it withers when ease gives way to trial. Little faith focuses on Christ and turns its eyes, loses, little faith loses focus on Christ and turns its eyes elsewhere when tough times come. Great faith is a faith that remains fixated on the Lord Jesus Christ, fully confident and fully assured that from him we draw all of our strength and all of our supply, knowing that we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. Increase your sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, and faith is strengthened as a result. Great faith is a faith that looks to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, trusting Jesus, confidence in Jesus, led the Apostle Paul to pen this most wonderful encouragement to all of us. In Philippians 4, he wrote, I have learned in whatever situation I am in, I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what is the secret? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's this type of faith that Jesus is describing next when he said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. This picture of commanding a mountain to uproot and move was proverbial in these days for overcoming tremendous, seemingly impossible difficulties and obstacles. It's not a literal thing. For the one who trusts in Christ, for the one who has faith in Christ, for the one who understands that all of their supply and their power comes from Christ, nothing will be impossible. Now, a couple of caveats about this text because this is a text that is used by a number of aberrant and unfaithful movements to promote the prosperity gospel trash. These words are spoken specifically to the disciples. Jesus specifically authorized and empowered them for a most spectacular and supernatural ministry. This idea of spectacular, miraculous, supernatural power is not made to all believers that they can go out and perform miracles, as some might suggest. Statements like this in the Gospels are always and only spoken to the Twelve as a group. The you here is a plural you, not a singular you. So what does that mean for us? For us who would apply this promise, we must recognize and trust that nothing to which the Lord calls us will be impossible because we know he will supply us everything needed to accomplish his will. As the early church father Augustine wrote in his great work, The Confessions, give what you command and then command what you will. Empower me to do what you call me to do and then command me to do it. Meaning, for all the Lord commands us to do, he will provide us with the empowerment to do it. For those who trust in the power of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, nothing will be impossible in their labors to accomplish his will. One commentator put it like this. 
Nothing is impossible for the man or woman who trusts in the power of God to accomplish the will of God. For you, as you pray what Christ told you to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you pray this, pray it trusting that whatever the Lord calls you to do in response, he will provide you the strength, the means, and the resources to do it. This is the type of trust and faith that Jesus is describing here. Complete and total trust in him. Is that you? Do you possess such a faith? Do you trust Jesus? I mean, really trust him. When things get a little hectic and out of control in your own life, do you cast your anxieties on Jesus or do you lose focus on him in favor of trying to solve everything yourself? Don't be one of little faith. Look at the disciples. When they lost sight of Christ and tried to fix things in their own power, they could not do it. And the same is true for you and I. Without Christ, we can do nothing. But with Christ, nothing is impossible. So, commit yourself to spending time on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. Commune with Him. Trust in Him. Commit your way unto Him. Look to Him because He alone is mighty. He alone is truly trustworthy. He alone can save. And in Him, when you see Him, when you look at Him, you can, along with the Apostle Paul, confidently declare... I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Amen. Father, we praise you, we thank you, and we love you. Lord, as we open up your word and we see your compassion and your mercy and your pity on this boy who had been held captive by the enemy, we praise you and we recognize that that's exactly what you did for each and every one of us with faith in you this morning. Our eyes were darkened. Our hearts were stone. We were running headlong in the direction of an eternity apart from you. And yet you, in your compassion and in your mercy, you saved us. And we praise you for that. I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes turned, fixated, and peeled on you, the object of our faith, the founder of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. Help us not to be those who, like the disciples on this occasion, possess little faith, but who are ones who have a rock-solid, confident assurance that you are who you say you are, you are powerful to do what you say you will do, and that you will give us all supply in accordance with your promises. And we pray this all in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Man.